Hello, everyone, and welcome to the State of Sport Management, a podcast with Dr. Matthew Hummel coming from the University of Cincinnati in Cincinnati, Ohio. Here's this week's episode. Welcome, everybody, back here to another episode of State of Sport Management. We have an exciting guest that's going to be joining us today talking about social media. It might be the first time that anyone within sport management has gone viral and captured the attention of a national audience like we all wish our research projects would on the daily. But today we have Dr. Lindsay Darvin joining us today. She is working at SUNY Cortland, that's State University of New York at Cortland. And she is gonna be talking about a tweet she posted within the past couple of weeks. And then we're also gonna talk a little bit about starting a research project as I think it's a really vital, important topic for someone that's taking on such a dawning uh, mountain that is writing a whole paper and she's going to kind of talk us talk to us about those first couple steps. So Lindsay, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing good. We're hoping here at least in Cincy that this heat will finish up. We're, we got a couple more days of 90 degrees and supposedly it's going to cool down. Oh geez. Yeah. We had about 85 yesterday and now today it's all rain, but you know what? I'll take it as long as I can. No snow is a good thing. <laughs> that's, that's true. I mean, how much snow do you get up there? At Corlett. I'm not too familiar with the area. We are known as the snow belt, actually. Okay. And I didn't Thanks. take it that seriously when I first came up here, but it, it kicks in pretty quickly. So in uh, end of November, middle of November, we get, you know, you'll get five or six inches and no one really bats an eye about it. Um, but yeah, we'll get, you know, you get the bigger storms, but it's just, it's the consistency of it that I've never experienced before. So it is pretty consistent from middle November to beginning of March. You're just going to have snow. It's going to be yeah. white. And I always tell people, so I went to, cause I saw you've been kind of all over the place. You've been to UMass, you did your master's mm-hmm. there and then do your PhD at Florida. So you might've kind of lost that <laughs> Northern, like, I don't know what you want to call that courage or of like not worry right. about being the snow. And then you go down to Gainesville where snow is very, very little, if anything, to now going up there. But when I went to Grand Valley, I was told, oh, it's going to snow a lot. It's going to snow a lot because it's on the east side of Lake Michigan. And I was like, you know, I'm from Chicago. I've seen a lot of snow, yada, yada, yada. Well, the first year we were there, we got like 112 inches of snow. Oh and my gosh. That was, that was an eye opener. Like we got snow on Halloween. That was first, like the earliest I'd ever seen snow. Right. Um, but yeah, so I've heard stories about New York, like Syracuse and, um, mm-hmm. and it sounds like your area too, where there's a ton of snow up there. <laughs> well, and it's not, oh, absolutely. And, and even it's not just the snow. So you had this, or you didn't have this actually last year, but I think Cincinnati did get it. The polar vortex, that was the kicker. We had like two or three of those last year oh, and that was pretty bad. Yeah. So the snow, you know, you can handle the snow, 20 degree weather that gets to be a little tough after a while. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, all right. So uh, we can always talk about the weather another time, Absolutely. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about this tweet. So if you can kind of give sure. a little bit of background for anyone that didn't see it, can you give us a little bit about what your tweet was about? Yeah, absolutely. So it was, and hopefully even if people didn't see the tweet, they did follow the U.S. Women's National Team World Cup victory over the summer. And if you did, you know that Megan Rapino was essentially the star of that team and is known now. I mean, she was known before pretty much worldwide, but is was really a household name now at yes. this point after the World Cup, which is phenomenal for not only her, not only the women's national team, but women's sport uh, in general. And so, yeah, so the tweet was, is I actually did not watch the Alabama football game the day before. I tweeted this out on a, on a Sunday, I believe. And I came across it on Sports Center. Najee Harris, he did the infamous Rapino stance after she scored many of her goals at the World Cup, where she kind of raises both of her arms to the sky and just kind of looks over at the crowd. 
And so he did that after a touchdown. And so I, I was watching SportsCenter one morning on Sunday morning and I saw him do it and I saw them kind of show it. They didn't, they didn't say anything about it on SportsCenter. And that's kind of what prompted the tweet. I saw him and I, I went on to my phone and I just kind of took a screenshot of it. And then I, I thought it looked good by putting both of those pictures together and, and tweeting about it and letting people know that he had done this. And then I actually found out after I tweeted it that he had been interviewed and he actually did indicate that he did it to honor her, which is also really cool. And he kind of nice. called it the Rapino. So, so it actually became a bigger story than I even realized um, because, I, again, I hadn't been following the game. So I didn't know what people were talking about during the game on Saturday. But yeah, I, I saw it. I was like, this is great. This is, you know, this is a male athlete in a high profile sport for a very high profile team doing something to honor a women's uh, athlete. And I thought this would be a great thing to tweet out. Yeah. And maybe it's, I have this, like, I love women's soccer. It's probably one of my favorite sports to watch. It also doesn't hurt that my wife used to play college soccer for a long time, but it's yeah. weird for me of like Rapino was a humongous name in women's soccer for a long time. Right. And now it's um, because of the social justice stances, because the team just won again, that her name has kind of reached a whole nother level. But it's funny that I feel like there's people that didn't even know who Megan Rapino were or was, but now do. And so it, that part was kind of interesting to me, but I love like one of my favorite things about your tweet was the two photos right next right. to each other in the sense of there is a lot of crossover. Like they're both wearing kind of all white jerseys. You have the high socks. You have a very, like you talking about a very similar stance with the arms out. Um, I just think, and it was really cool. Like, yeah, you tweeted. And then I saw that, but then later when like I thought, hey, you know, when I saw Lindsay post this, I'm like, yeah, you know, it's pretty cool. She's noticing that someone's doing a similar thing, but I don't know this person was doing it purposely. But then later when it came out and he mentioned her, then it was like, oh man, like we've, we're hitting a whole nother gear with how this is being talked about. Absolutely. And, and these, you know, these college athletes, especially, you know, men's football, uh, men's basketball, women's basketball, they hold, they carry a lot of weight, you know, I mean, they have social media accounts themselves, the fans love them, they're following them all the time. So it may not seem that momentous, but to have, you know, a college football player from the University of Alabama, a really good football player from that team, right? We're not talking about a third string running back here. It's great to have him notice it, call it out, say that he was honoring her because it just, you know, and, and I said that in the tweet, I said, that's, that's truly changing the culture to have someone like him take notice of what she did and, and, to, and think it's cool, you know? Um, given his age range and all of that, you know, to think that Megan Rapinoe is cool and he wants to mimic her. I mean, that's, that's absolutely huge. Yeah. And, and on top of that, you also have this going on in the deep South where potentially you have a lot more resistance or disagreement with someone like Megan Rapinoe. But then when they see one of their football players on their prize team do that, that that might soften, like you said, might change the narrative that changes the culture that potentially can soften kind of the situation at hand. I, I was going to ask, do you know, like, when did this, when did you know that this was going viral, that this wasn't just one of your other tweets? I mean, no offense, but obviously you're not getting right. 19,000 likes on, on every single one of your tweets. I try, you know, every tweet I send out, I think it's going to go viral. That's what you have to <laughs> this think. This is right? the one right here. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. This is it. And, and actually, you know, I, I would love to come on here and say, you know, even oh, it's just luck and all that kind of stuff. And it is, a lot of this has to do with some luck, but you know, I do, you were mentioning some of the similarities in the photos and I actually took several screenshots of his, the end of his touchdown there to kind of match it as best I could with her, with her pose. So, um, so I definitely try very hard. I don't want people to think that I'm just throwing these tweets out there and I don't think about, you know, the message I'm, I'm sending out, but you know, it's <laughs> funny, it was a funny story. I, I tweeted this out. So it would have been Sunday morning. And then 
I will give, we talked about the weather before, I will give Cortland this. The falls here are tremendous. The falls are absolutely gorgeous. So I try to get out for as many hikes as I can. So I actually, I tweeted it, went out for a hike, didn't really have service. So it wasn't until I got back from that hike, maybe five hours later that I started noticing that this was, this was picking up steam. Um, and so I, at that point, I would say like Sunday afternoon, I saw that it was, I don't remember how many likes or, or retweets it had at that point, but I noticed that it was picking up steam. I noticed that other people were, you know, retweeting it and commenting on it and things like that. And then actually it wasn't until it really came full circle on Monday because I actually had several, you know, women that I went to undergrad with reach out to me about it because there was a, a, um, an Instagram account on her turf actually tweeted this out, not tweeted it out, but took a, a photo of the tweet and posted it on their Instagram account. And that had, you know, now it has close to 12,000 likes itself. And I had people tagging me on that who follow it and then sending me messages about it. Um, so really I noticed, you know, Sunday afternoon that it was picking up steam and that people were really taking notice of it. They really, again, I, I sometimes when these things go viral, you get trolls and all of that, but I really didn't have that. It was really received very well. People were excited about it. And then on Monday to have, you know, old friends reach out and say that they saw this was pretty cool. Yeah. I was kind of wondering that I was going to ask, did you get any messages from people that were like troll activity or people trying to essentially draw you into some type of heated discussion? And I get it. So anyone that follows me on, on Twitter knows that I get into those sometimes, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, uh, not actually not for this one, which I'll, I'll be perfectly honest when it comes to Twitter, I do actually get a little bit nervous when things I've, I've had other tweets, nothing like this before, but I've had tweets go semi-viral, you know, you'll have like a thousand likes or something mm -hmm. like that. I, I get a little nervous because that's usually it's for me, it's always typically about gender equity in sport or women in sport. So when something starts to go viral, there's that little bit of anxiety every time you see the the notification pop up. You know, you don't know if it's going to be someone who likes it or someone who's going to try to, yeah, what you said, get you into heated conversation about the topic. But no, for this one, I've got to be honest, everyone who even retweeted it to comment on the top of it, they were all very, very supportive of it. They were excited about it. And, you know, a lot of actually Alabama fans were tweeting it out, you know, giving praise to their, their school and their team. So going back to what you were talking about before, it, it is changing the narrative down south as well, especially for an athlete like a Rapino who, you know, given some of her political stances may not align very well um, with many individuals down there. So it was neat to see. Yeah, I didn't, I did not have many, many trolls on this one, fortunately. I, and one thing I was wondering, I haven't really um, been following Alabama football this much or much this year because, well, first of all, they're really good and I'm sure they're playing a bunch of crummy teams. But <laughs> I wonder if Najee Harris, do you know, has he repeated this type of celebration or is that something maybe you haven't quite checked on yet? So I'm a Gator, so I oh. haven't been following uh, Alabama all that closely after this point. But it's a great question, actually. It's it's something that I that I should be looking into to see if he's done this again. I haven't seen anything really pop up after this point. Actually, I think it was Bleacher Report tweeted this out too. So I haven't seen anyone else gotcha. tweet about it since then. So maybe if he had done it, it would have been out there. But and if he hasn't, you know, cool for the tweet, but you would hope that maybe he'll he'll do it again, or some other athletes will also kind of pick up on it too. Yeah, that's what I was kind of wondering. I just. I mean, when Alabama's playing some school that they're favored by 60 points, it's just not really worth my, my time. Right. <laughs> right. It was, a, yeah, it was, it was a more competitive game against South Carolina. So maybe that's why he got a little more excited, but no, I have not seen him do it again. Yeah. So, I mean, is there any thoughts of potentially why you think this tweet connected with people in a different way than your other tweets? 
And and I've thought about that a lot because again, like I like I said before, you know, you hope all your tweets are going to go viral, right? I mean, as as academics, as researchers, as educators, you know, we this is this is a great way for us to get our messages out there in a really concise way that's relatable to to more than just our students. And I you know I think that for Rapino and and you mentioned this earlier, I do think it has a lot to do with maybe her her political standing. You know, if you don't necessarily have to be a fan of soccer to follow her, to be a fan of her, you don't have to be a sports per se, right, to follow her and, and be a fan of Megan Rapino. So, and she's been, you know, this isn't just 2019, Megan Rapino. you know, she's been out, she's been, you know, kneeling, not, you know, putting her hand up for the national anthem. She's been doing little things and she's been out there, you know, pushing her, you know, her belief system and her ethics and morals before this point. So I think she does have a really strong following. And, and beyond that, I do think the unique combination of putting, you know, Alabama football in with this and having two teams, you know, Alabama football being on there and then the U.S. Women's National Team, two really prominent U.S. sports teams kind of combined into one action, I think really drew out more people. You know, again, I got the Alabama fans retweeting it, whereas maybe some of them may not have agreed as much with some of Rapino's political standing. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, but I got them to, to tweet it out too. So I think, you know, I think, again, Rapino is unique. I don't know that you necessarily have to be a fan of, of soccer, women's soccer, or even sport to be a fan of her. And she's, I, all the credit to her on that, you know, she's really done that herself. She's built her brand up really tremendously over the past couple of years. So again, I think she's a lot, she's a strong following just as Alabama football has a strong following, but you know, this tweet I think was special for, for a few of those reasons. Yeah, there was, my one thought was potentially, I was somewhat surprised not to see any anger because I know there's a lot of hate for Alabama football too. Um, good point. And, but it's just, I feel like it's, this is like one of those tough things to take an angle that you really hate. I mean, unless you're just going to be blunt and be like, I, I don't like Megan Rapinoe and don't like Alabama football or something. And I think that's just kind of part of the, the greatness of this, of this tweet in the sense of that it's, it's tough for the haters, I guess, to find an angle where they're really going to hang their hat on. But at the same sense, it's also a good message for lots and lots of other people that are going to kind of enjoy the content for this as well. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, you're saying you hope every tweet goes viral. I'd be terrified <laughs> if every one of my tweets went viral because uh, this means I might have said something really dumb. <laughs> There's a lot of pressure on it, for sure. Yeah, yeah there's a lot. Uh, okay, so kind of switching angles here a little bit. want to talk a little bit about kind of starting a research project because I think this is an especially important topic for doc students out there. I remember the first time taking on a research project. It can be very daunting. You are... Um, at least for me, I'm not necessarily submitting everything to a journal like Journal Sport Management, but it ends up becoming a good guideline of I need to write about 40 pages and yeah. double space, 12 point font, yada, yada, yada. And that's kind of my goal. But it can be very daunting when you're starting at zero. All you have is a title or a lot of times now I don't even have a title when I'm starting. So the first word down is the very first word in the paper. Like how, like kind of walk us through the process there of starting a research project from your point of view. Sure. And, and going along even with, with social media and with this tweet, you know, that is actually, you know, how I generate some of my ideas. So I'm, I'm pretty active mm. on social media and, you know, even beyond social media, I've met a lot of individuals and I know you were going to ask this later on, but you know, how do I build research teams and things like that? You know, it's all, a lot of it comes through social media, oh, um, nice. through Twitter and things like that. So, so I tried to, so in terms of, of first steps, right, coming up with the topic or coming up with the research idea, I... I really try my best to just stay very observant. So whether I am watching a sporting event, whether I'm on social media or whether I am, 
you know, having a conversation with a coach or an administrator or someone like that and just kind of asking them questions about how things are going or things that they're noticing. I just try to kind of log it all away as best I can. And actually we're running list going, I think as many people do on their phones and my little notepad of, of research ideas that I, that may never come, come to fruition, but I just, I keep a, a running list just in case based on some of these conversations, but that's always the first step for me. So I, I try to always be aware of, of sort of what's going on, what the current trends are and things of that nature. And then from there, I, I agree with you. I never start with a title. Um, that's never my, my go-to. I try to be creative or a little bit more creative with my title. So sometimes I like to wait to put those up actually at the end or, or as I'm working through it um, later on in that process. But I, I'm big into outlines today. That's my go-to now. So outlines, obviously, if you're working with a research team that is not you know in the same office as you, you have to figure out other ways to communicate. So outlines and Google Docs, those are my two go-tos now. I'm not big into having like one working document, emailing that back and forth. I think that gets very confusing and not super organized. So and, and a lot of the people that I work with, even when I was a doc student, I've, I was fortunate to work with a lot of individuals that were not at the University of Florida. And my advisor, Dr. Sagas, was really, he was great about that. He let me kind of branch out and work with, with other individuals outside of UF. So I've been, I've been working with people that were, there's a distance there for quite some time. So that was an easy transition kind of leaving grad school. And now as an assistant professor, that wasn't that difficult to keep that going. But, you know, outlines are big for me. You know, I obviously like to make sure that whatever topics I'm working with, they stay within my general research agenda, which is, you know, driving, you know, high rates of gender equity in sport and increasing the, the representation of women in leadership roles. So as long as it kind of stays under that agenda, I, I just start kind of rolling with it. I, I try to pick topics where I've, I'm familiar with the literature already so that it's not, you know, that deep of a dive into new lit right away and then just kind of build the outline and, and see where it goes. I, lo- I really like your thought on the outline too, because I think one thing I've noticed, and this might be a sport management thing, this might be a higher ed or PhD thing, but I've noticed that sometimes when I work with people that were educated in a different program, that I notice a lot of the beginning stages are very different. So I'm working right. with someone, um, Liz Taylor and I do a lot of research together. One of the people that she works with that's getting their PhD at Temple had this really robust Excel spreadsheet they used to build their survey. And I loved it and ripped it off. Total rip off. I'm not (laughs) saying I designed that at all. But then I've worked with some other people that do a great job of outlining a whole project. And that was something I wasn't exposed to at UofL. So I've kind of started using that. So it's, it's one of those things that for me, when it comes to project stuff, at least in the beginning, maybe this is after obviously uh, a topic and theme are, are chosen. But when it comes to actually deciding, well, who does what, I've started to pick up a little bit on some pieces that at least make things more organized. Right. Um, I don't know if I'd necessarily say better, but at least it's that organization makes me feel a little bit better for, for kind of what's going on with that standpoint. And I've found too, so I'm, I'm trying to branch out. So going back to sort of that research team idea, I'm, I've worked now with, um, she's a women's soccer coach right now, and then another woman who's a women's lacrosse coach and the SWA at her school. And, and that I think has been, I've, I've kind of reverted back to the outline model because of some of that, because you know, okay. we're not just working with academics as well. It's really helpful to them to sort of see our train of thought since we can kind of be all over the place yeah. in the beginning. So that that helped me a lot to work with, to go back and work with practitioners on some research projects and, and kind of see what their needs were and make sure that I was actually really laying everything out for them so that they could follow my train of thought pretty thoroughly. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because I think working with practitioners, like you said, is a completely different ballgame. Um, 
you're taking someone that maybe has an innate talent, skill, knowledge, whatever of whatever it is that you're hoping to capture, but they have no skills or at least training or very little training for actually writing it up as a paper. Um, right. They're actually like, yeah, putting that into practice type thing. So that's, that's great. I mean, so when it comes to like topic and stuff, you're talking about using social media. So do you then take potential topics you're seeing as a, as an option on social media and then going into the literature and seeing if there's anything connected to that? Yeah, that, that's pretty much. Yeah that's pretty much my process. So I will, you know, I'll come up with an idea or someone will maybe ask me a question, a friend or, or a practitioner. And if I don't have that answer for them, or I'm not sure what the answer is, then I, you know, the wheel starts spinning and you say, okay, has this been done before? Is this out literature? And, and then I do, I dive back in and I try to I get a sense of, you know, what has been done, what's similar to maybe that research question that they were asking me or the question that they asked that I didn't have an answer to. And then, you know, beyond that too, I also, you know, I, I tell my students this all the time as well, you know, when in certain areas, don't reinvent the wheel. You know, some of the research projects that I've been fortunate to come up with and some things I'm working on right now are, are essentially replications of projects that have been completed in other industry segments. So um, I'm working on a leadership competency piece right now. And, you know, that was taken from a consulting group, but also we've seen Harvard Business Review release that quite a bit. They have they have some follow-ups to that original study looking at, you know, the differences between men and women in leadership roles and the competencies that their subordinates think they have. And so I, I didn't reinvent anything there. I just said, you know, is the sport industry different? And I think a lot of us would say sport is unique in this way. And so let's, let's roll this out um, in the sport management literature. So sometimes it's even as simple, I think, as just finding a really great study in another industry segment and saying, I think this definitely relates here and let's go for it with, with sport management practitioners and see what we find. And kind of going off that, when you have a topic, like do you, how much time or effort do you put in trying to figure out what your initial target journal is going to be? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and as PhD students were trained in that too, I remember I would always get those questions. I worked with, yeah. um, you know, Meg, I worked with Meg Hancock. She, she was always a phenomenal uh, mentor for me when I was a, a PhD student. That was usually her first question. It was always like, what's your target uh, journal? And, you know, unfortunately at times, I think that becomes a little bit tough with what I study. And I've spoken to other women that do study, um, you know, gender equity and women in leadership. And, and sometimes, you know, unfortunately it doesn't fit in, in the more traditional business journals that we have in sport management spaces. But I, I, I do study a lot with intercollegiate sports. So sometimes I do think, you know, okay, I know this is going to fit into, you know, a JIS or a JIIA or something of that nature. Um, but I have branched out, you know, I do, I do have a piece in sex roles and I do look beyond the traditional sport management journals as well. If I think it fits better in there and it's a more general topic, but I do, you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't say I spend a tremendous amount of time thinking about the journal right away. I think for me, I always find that it's more important to, to outline that art, the, the journal article that I'm going to write, you know, outline the manuscript, think about where the data is going to come from. And then sort of, as that starts to develop further, you know, then I really start to narrow in more so on the journal, because like you said, I mean, page, page numbers matter. I, I do a lot of qualitative research too. And so that becomes difficult. So to know that one journal's page limit is 25 pages and another one is 40, you know, that's a huge difference for, for a qualitative piece. So in terms of some of those logistical aspects, I do try to think about it a little bit more thoroughly, but definitely at the beginning. And as I, as I start that process, I'm not so focused on that. Um, I want to just make sure that I'm getting the best data I can, the right data in the right ways and and making sure that I'm writing the piece in the best way possible. Yeah. And as I kind of love that we are talking about two different approaches there because to me, everyone has to kind of find that sweet spot of 
how important is it either for your job or for yourself personally, career goals, whatever, to get into certain journals? Or is it more important for you to be able to write this without feeling restricted? Um, right. Or potentially trying to find the exact topic and narrative that you want or trying to find that exact pulse from that topic? And I, I think that's a good, great question. It's something that everyone has to kind of find because it's funny that you bring up uh, Dr. Hancock, because obviously me and her were trained in the same way. So maybe there's some U of L restriction there. We're always just thinking about journals and maybe we shouldn't be, but it's a great question there of like, yes, maybe there is some initial discussion about, Hey, maybe we should be looking at these seven journals or five journals or whatever. Um, another thing you mentioned, I thought was really important is sex roles. Sex roles as a journal is something I've definitely seen that they, they seem to be open to sport related articles. And I think there is some importance of knowing non-sport management journals that are going to be open to the topic that you're talking about that might, it more might align, especially for you, it might align with topics that you're exploring, but knowing that what journals seem to be already open to sport management articles without having to find out if the editor likes it, or if you're not even going to have um, a lending ear for your topic at all. Right. And again, and, and going back to, to my, my advisor, Dr. Sagich, you know, I was fortunate because he obviously has published, you know, all over the place. So we, I, I did have a nice little insight there knowing that, yeah, sexuals would, would obviously be interested in, in something out of the, the sport industry. And, and I, yeah, and I agree with you. I think that everyone is different and, and the current institution that I'm at right now, we don't have the same restrictions placed on us in terms of where the papers have to go and the certain numbers and A journals versus B journals and all of that. So I am very fortunate. It's, it's something when, you know, doc students are out on the job market, it's something to think about too, because, you know, you, maybe your work is, it's more difficult to get it into some of those journals right now. Some of the A journals listed in sport management or business journals. So it's definitely something to think about when you're on the job market and ask those questions, you know, during the interview process as well and find out, you know, where would my research fit and, and what are the requirements for tenure here? Yeah, for sure. And, I, and we've had some episodes earlier talking about that tenure thing because it's really important for kind of what's going on there. Um, briefly want to talk to you about this because as someone that's now what's starting year two at SUNY Cortland, I, um, and this wasn't necessarily something we scheduled, but, it's something I've been tweeting about. There seems to be a ton of high level jobs open this year. Um, way more than at least I can think of in the last handful of years, like maybe two years before I went out, I thought there was a bunch of openings, but I mean, we could see a lot of movement, but um, just some basic thoughts about what you picked up during the interview process that you think would be important for others to think about when they're going to be applying for jobs this coming year. Absolutely. And I've, I've noticed that too. And then we had UF just come out. Was it yesterday? I think University yeah. of Florida just posted something. Yeah. So it's, yeah. And I've been following your tweets about it too. It's hilarious. Um, so yeah, I, I think, and, and everyone's different here, but, but the one, the one thing that I always stuck to, and this was something that was important to me during the job search was location. So I am from New Jersey originally, and obviously, as you mentioned before, I've been all over the place for grad work and then jobs. I was out in Colorado for a little bit. So I've, I've traveled the country a bit, which is, which is typical in, which is in awesome. sport, <laughs> which is awesome as well. Yeah, I've had some really great experiences doing that. But for me, um, and I talked to Dr. Sagas about this, it's also something to talk to your advisor about too. But I just, I told him, I was like, I'm, I'm doing like a four hour radius around my parents' house. You know, I knew that they weren't going to be moving anytime soon. My sister had just gotten married and she had just actually had 
her first child. So at the time, my my niece was about two years old, and I wanted to be close enough to be around them. So for me, one of the biggest the biggest pieces of the job search was location, and I think that that's incredibly important. And I don't think that that doc students coming out should lose sight of that because if you don't like where you live, it makes the job I think that much more difficult. Um, you know, you could be at a great school, but if it's not in the right location or your family's too far away. I think that that can weigh on you in ways that you don't truly understand yet, given that I think a lot of doc students have been traveling quite a bit or they've been living in different locations, whether that's for jobs or or grad school. So I know it's it's pretty generic, but I do think that it's it's increasingly important to to keep tabs on that. And I, I also think that you know the millennial generation, my generation, we care a lot more we care more about that. You know, we want to be close to not only our our, our direct family, but our friends. And, and that was important for me, too. I had a lot of friends from undergrad that I'm still very close with that I wanted to be close to again. And I think that the millennial generation is a little bit different in that way. We want to be close to our parents. We want to be close to siblings. We want to be close to our nieces and our nephews. And, you know, that's, that's just, I, I, that's one big piece of advice that I would give would just be consider the location, think about long-term implications of, of living in that area. And if you see yourself living there for the next, you know, 10 to 20 years. Yeah, I think what you bring up with the location is really important in the sense of exactly what you said. You need to decide, unlike docs, like when you do a PhD, I think the thought is, you know, I'm here for three, four, five years and then I'll leave. So there's always an end point. But when you go and take a job, like you said, you could be there for the rest of your life. And there's a little bit different of not having that end point. Now, for some people, it and it, it is fairly common for people as faculty to go somewhere for three, four years or right before tenure, like before actually going for tenure and then switching jobs. And it is a little risky to bank on that. Like you said, you could have taken a job in, in Washington and with the thought that, you know, I'll be here for a couple of years and then I'll be able to get closer to family, but you're just kind of rolling the dice that something's going to open in the moment. I think it's especially important if, if this is your year, you're going out and there's a job close to home, like that should be, and that's an important piece for you, then that should be priority number one. Like, don't think that at some point you're going to boomerang back because I always tell people, you might be from Michigan and Michigan might not have an opening. Um, like, especially if you're thinking R1, it's like what you got, University of Michigan, Michigan State, just using those that state as an example. And so you're really just banking on one of those jobs, one of the few jobs to open up, and that's just kind of a risky proposition. So I'm with you totally. If, if you think whatever's most important to you, you need to figure that out and then decide that's, you can't wait for that to happen later on. You need to, to try to make that happen as much as you can in that moment. Yeah. And, and it was something that was a little bit difficult for me because, you know, coming from, from Northern Jersey, there aren't a lot of R1 sport management programs in that general area. That's true. Uh, so, right. So it was definitely something that I had had in the back of my mind, you know, for a couple of years being down um, in Florida. And, and again, Dr. Stegas knew that he knew that I wanted to get back. He knew that family was very important to me, which again, may not be something that everyone needs to consider, but I, you know, going into that job search process, I, I knew that maybe I didn't want to just be somewhere for a year or two years and then move again and, and have to risk yeah. not being able to get back closer if I did move to California or Washington or Texas or something like that. But, um, but again, that's, everyone is different. And, and I don't know that in another couple of years, I won't feel like maybe it's time to, to move away again. And then maybe I come back. But I think that also as a, as a doc student come For me, even thinking about getting a job after the first one, it didn't even cross my mind yet. You know, you're like, just get me the first one. I don't want to think about having to do this process again because it's obviously a very difficult process. So I just wanted to get back yeah, as close as I possibly could in that moment. 
Yeah, I can tell you as someone that's moved twice, it's thanks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and yeah, it just it's especially as you get older, I feel like you have more stuff. It does more stuff to move longer to move in all that. Right. But um, all right, Lindsay, I think that's everything. Unless there was anything else you wanted to add in that we talked about already. No, no, I think I'm all good. I will say that I and I broke down the numbers so that I would have it here. We are I'm about 20,000 impressions away from a million with that tweet. So that's exciting. Holy cow. Yes. <laughs> a million impressions. Yes. I think if I ever, the few that I look at, it's like, if I get a thousand, I'm pretty like, um, I, that, you know, some people saw that that's important. <laughs> um, but a million, holy cow. Right. That's, so I wish it was about a research project that I had done, but I still like that. I got to push, push a message <laughs> that I'm, that I'm passionate about and something that does align with my research agenda. So a million yeah, impressions. But like I said, there's probably a whole bunch. I don't know how many more followers you picked up. I'm sure you picked up quite a few people that are now following yes. you, but that just means that many more people are going to be able to see the stuff that you're doing on research wise. Absolutely. And maybe that means them there as well. So there's a lot of ripple effects to this for sure. Yeah. I picked up about, I think it was probably about 200 over the past two weeks. And, and that's, and wow. that is actually one thing I did want to say. I, I, I like that there are more and more researchers and academics using things like Twitter. It just, I think that it just makes us much more relatable to our current student population, to practitioners and you know, I'm a huge advocate of it. Obviously, I've had some success um, in this area. We, I had another tweet actually go viral during the um, Women's World Cup about the the Thailand women's national team, and my school actually picked up on it, and I wrote a story about it, and they wanted to ask me more. So, it's it's a great way um, to to reach a larger group of people, even if it's not about your research directly. It's probably something that you're pushing out there that you're passionate about. So. I love it and would love to see more people using Twitter in our, in our field. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I want to thank Lindsay Darwin for joining us here on the podcast. This is great. Like I'm sure we're potentially even restricting some great tweets that could be coming out by her spending some time here. <laughs> but um, Lindsay, are you going to be at any conferences this year? If anyone wanted to, to say hello? Yes, absolutely. So right now I'm planning on tentatively pads and then I'm also planning on NASA. And then there may be some other ones that come in the mix there too. Nice. Awesome. Well, Lindsay, again, thanks for joining us for this episode here of State of Sport Management. And for listeners, we appreciate you listening in. Thank you very much.